Amen. Well, you guys can have a seat. I have one question before we get going. Who is grateful that Jesus has paid it all? Amen. Amen. I mean, I can't get over it. Every time I think of it, it just like overwhelms me, this idea that we did not deserve what God has given us. Man, I'm so thankful to be back with you guys. I missed you guys. Tyler, Marcus, the whole team did an incredible job. Um, and I just want to say thank you for all, right? Yeah, give them a hand, of, a round of applause. I was talking with uh, Matt Carter this week, and he sits on the board for this church right now um, as we're moving towards more of a local board in the future, but he sits on the board, and he launched this church called the Austin Stone in Austin, Texas um, years ago. He's now at Sagemont Church in Houston, but I was just talking to him, and I was explaining kind of what God was doing, and I just want you guys to know that you're a part of something very special. He sees church plants all over the country. And he said, what God is doing here, we're in the top 1% of any church plant in America. We're talking Houston, Austin, Denver, any city in America. What God is doing here is remarkable. Amen. And what an honor that we get to be a part of it, right? I also want to say thank you for your faithful giving. Uh, in September, we're going to do another, uh, we did it last year, we're going to show you where the money was spent, where it goes. But I just want you to know, I was sharing with him kind of budget stuff too, um, as he's on the board, and we bring in about $600,000 a year, which is incredible for a church this size. It's about $50,000 a month right now, and he said that puts us in the top half percent of any church in America. God is doing something here that we can't explain. Out of that with staff and all the expenses we spend right about, I'd have to look, I don't do much with it, but I think it's close to 400000 Right now, we've been able to save in the first two years of a church almost $600,000 uh, because of your guys' faithful giving. So I just want you to know that we do our best to steward our resources well, and God is honoring what is going on here. So I just want you to be encouraged. This is not normal. We're less than two years old. But God is doing an amazing thing if we will continue to bow low and lift him high. If we will continue to preach and stand upon the truth of his word. There's no telling what he might do with a bunch of faithful people. And that's the key, right? None of us are that special. We're great, but God is just choosing to do something. So thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for serving. Thank you for being obedient. I mean, it's crazy. I think we have like 130-something people serving in a church of our average right now is about 320 with kids. That's, that's a very high number of people serving. In Matt's church, he has about 5,000, I think, and he said he has about 1,000 people serving. So percentage-wise, we're actually higher. It's amazing. God is doing amazing things. And can we just give him praise for that? So God, I just pray this morning as we enter into your word that you would do yet again what only you can do, that you would move in the hearts of each person in this room, including myself. God, I pray that as we dive into your word and see what you have laid out for how we live a blessed life, for how we live a joy-filled, happy life, God, that, you would, that we would see that you are for us. And God, would we really soak this in this morning so that we can be the people that you have called us to be. 
And if there's someone in this room that does not know you, God, that is just checking you out or checking us out, and they just don't really know who Jesus is, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would tenderly come alongside of them and reveal to them for the very first time how great and awesome you are and how much you love them and are for them. God, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about what about you, but what do you think of when you think of the term meek or meekness? Most people think weakness. It's what the culture drives, is this idea of just weak-willed people. In fact, if you're a believer and you're like, man, I, yeah, I'm trying to become meek, the world would look at it like, oh, what a bunch of pansies. This meekness? What in the world is meekness? But the crazy thing is, is people in Jesus' day would have probably felt the exact same way, this idea of weakness. See, Jesus opened this greatest sermon ever written, the Sermon on the Mount, with a whole bunch of things saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, as we saw a few weeks ago. Blessed are the tokos, those who beg, those who know that they can't do it on their own. It's countercultural. It flips it on its head. Blessed are those who mourn or mourn over our sin. And now he says, blessed are the meek. To understand this, we have to know that at this time, the Jews were under Roman oppression. Every city that was taken in this day was taken by sheer and brutal force, like strong military action. That doesn't seem so meek. And this Messiah that was coming, that the Jews thought were going to free them and set them free, in their mind was not a weak little meek baby in a manger. In fact, the zealots thought that Jesus was going to come and take over Rome militarily, that their Messiah would come and he would just sweep through the land in a jet, just a fighter jet, and fly through Rome and wipe them all out with one foul swoop and everyone would be gone. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they thought that that Jesus was going to come and just do all these miraculous things and miraculously bring them out of oppression into freedom. The crazy thing was, was the Jews were under Roman oppression, yet they were so proud that they wouldn't even admit it. John 8, Jesus is talking about, if you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And this idea of freedom was just stunning to them. They're like, what is, I don't even understand freedom. What was their response? They said, Verse 32, 33 of John 8 says this, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. It's like, really? What about the Egyptians? What about the Romans? In fact, you're oppressed by the Romans right now. The whole point being they were filled with pride, and if they were going to do anything, it was all on their strength and merit. So when Jesus comes in and says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, they were like, there's no way. There's no way. I'm not going to follow a Messiah like that, a little wimpy boy. See, Jesus obviously had something different in mind when he came. And when Jesus started talking like he did, you could only imagine their reaction. It might be similar to yours. But Jesus was saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And can you imagine the Jews? They're like, man, what kind of army is Jesus gathering? (laughs) 
Are you kidding me? We're going to defeat the Romans with a bunch of poor in spirit, with a bunch of people who cry all the time and are meek and wimpy little pansies? Forget it. Why do you think they hated them? Because that was their view of Jesus. Jesus, as we're going to see in a little bit, was the definition of meek. Paul says that in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, he came to you, turned it on its head. And because of this, he disappointed the zealots, the military leaders, and he disappointed the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And as a result, if you remember, as he was with Pilate, Jesus, standing before the crowd, the Jews said, Pilate said, hey, do you want Barabbas, the criminal and the murderer, or do you want Jesus, the meek and mild little baby? And what did they say? Barabbas crucify Jesus. We don't want anything to do with meekness. We don't want anything to do with someone who's just going to come in here and not do anything about what? Our circumstance. Little did they know he was doing way more about their circumstance than they could have ever dreamt. They hated him. Why? Because he disappointed them. They hated him. Why? Because he didn't fulfill their expectations. Sound familiar? If we're honest, we can say that we've had a season in life where maybe we were the same. But they were fine crucifying him because he didn't change their circumstance. So they thought, but Jesus himself, hear this, demonstrated meekness. And this, in, this countered their entire philosophy on life. Seek, kill, destroy. If we want Rome gone, we just got to beat them. Jesus turned it on its head. And the same people that were waiting on that obviously had forgotten to read the chapters of basically 40 through 66 in Isaiah when Isaiah prophesied that Jesus himself was going to come as this, this servant, this suffering servant. If they would have read anything about Isaiah, they should have been half aware. I mean, all these religious people that knew the word didn't even know that Jesus was coming as a humble servant. They hated it. Jesus was meek. He came humbly and said, the kingdom of heaven is not for the proud. It's not for the strong. It's not for the arrogant. It's not for the self-righteous. It's not for the satisfied. It's not for the religious. It's not for the successful. It's not for the put together. But it is for the broken. It is for the mourning. It is for the meek. The hungry, the thirsty, the pure, the peacemakers, the persecuted, the reviled, the slandered, the kingdom of heaven is for you. And that's what Jesus came preaching, and they hated it. See, meekness is different than broken or poor in spirit. I love what John MacArthur says. He says it this way. The broken or the poor in spirit centers on my sinfulness, as we saw in the first week, our recognition that we just aren't that great and we need to be a beggar, the tokos, who says, God, just come to me because I can't fix myself. And when we get to the place where we know we can't fix ourselves, God says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. But see, the meekness centers on God's holiness, a recognition of who he is, it brings a posture by which we come before God, and it is not weakness, as we're going to see in a second. See, the two sides of the same thing, essentially, broken because I'm a sinner and meek, 
knowing that God is holy by comparison of my sin, yet he still chose to do something about it. What does God say about the meek? Psalm 147 says, 6 says this, The Lord lifts up the meek, he casts the wicked to the ground. Psalm 25, 9, the meek he will guide in judgment, and the meek will, he will teach his way. Psalm 22, 26, the meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. And lastly, Isaiah 29, 19 says this. Don't miss this one. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord. Sounds a lot like blessed. Sounds a lot like it. It's the same thing. You want happiness? You want blessing? Then do things God's way. That's the result. You will be blessed, he promises. But he says, increase their joy in the Lord. And then he says this, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Paul said that Jesus himself had this same characteristic, 2 Corinthians 10.1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. So Jesus himself was meek. But here's the deal, right? You're like, well, that's great, but I don't even really know what meek means. You've told me it's not weakness, but what is it? You've just told me what it's not. <laughs> what is it? I'm glad you asked because I saw some of you thinking like, yeah, I was about to ask that question. See, it's not weakness. It's power under control. It's power under constraint. The Greeks used this same term in regard to medicine, the breaking of a colt, and breeze. Medicine, when it's under control is safe and healthy, and it, and, and it accomplishes the things that it's supposed to accomplish. When it's out of control, it kills and destroys. Look at pain pills. When pain pills are used the way that they were designed, it is, it's for your benefit. But when it's out of control, the same substance is out of control, it kills or destroys. They use it in regard to a cult when it's bridled and it's choosing to submit to the authority it's under. It's very safe. When it's unbroken, it's dangerous. I don't know if you've ever gotten on a cult that's not broken or watched one. They can be very dangerous, right? Bucked off, kicked in the head. It's like this power that has no control. It's just flipping everywhere. It's doing whatever it wants. And its whole goal is to get you off of its back. There's power there. It's just not under constraint. It's just not controlled. And Jesus is saying meekness is power under control. And lastly, a breeze as they used it. This gentle, cool breeze satisfies. It could blow harder. When it blows harder, hurricanes come and it destroys. The same breeze under control. Proverbs defines the two well. Proverbs 25, 28 says this. A man without self-control or meekness is like a city broken into and left without walls. Proverbs 16.32 says this, though. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. So here's the deal. The meek know, and don't miss this because it's huge. The meek know that there is no reason to defend themselves. Did you know that Jesus never one time in all of Scripture defended himself? He defended his father at all costs. 
but he never defended himself. Why? Because he was meek. See, meek is not defending self, but you will die defending the case of God. It's meekness. It's power under control. Jesus modeled this. Think about it. Twice, he cleansed the temple. He went in, he would flip tables, he would blast hypocrites, and he would fiercely utter divine judgment on people. But, Jesus, but the Bible calls Jesus meek. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't sound very weak to me. It also doesn't sound very weak to me to call the one who literally defeated death and the grave weak. No! Power under control when at the perfect time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to atone for the sins of the world. Power under control. God could have just wiped us all out. But Jesus was his control factor to set us free. It's meekness. See, if you spend more time defending yourself than defending God, more than likely you are not meek. See, meekness is power used only in defense of God and not in defense of yourself. Has someone like deeply offended you, maybe at work or maybe a family member or maybe you have been slandered or maybe someone has come at you? And our first instinct, I do it all the time, is to just fire right back, right? Defend yourself. You know what I've learned? God's my defender. You know what I learn when I get letters and texts? Like, whatever, God's my defender. <laughs> when someone comes at me and tries to destroy, whatever, man, I love you, but God's my defender. I don't need to defend myself. That's meekness. It's power under control. Did you know that Jesus could have called on 12 legions of angels to defend himself? A legion was uh, basically about 6,000 Roman soldiers was one legion. So Jesus himself could have called on a minimum of 72,000 angels. To put it in perspective, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in 1 Chronicle 21. One angel. And Jesus could have called on 72,000 plus if he wanted to defend himself. But he's like, why would I defend myself I only defend the cause of my father. Meekness, power under control. See, he never once defended himself, but he fought to the death to defend his father and to defend you. That's the gospel. Meekness. Power under constraint, power under control. He could have wiped us off the map. He could have wiped anyone off the map. But no, in his goodness and his grace and his love, he came to defend you, to control this power, to set you free. It's the whole message of the gospel. And Jesus is saying, blessed are the meek, those who don't worry about defending themselves. Just come to me and let me be your defender. Blessed are you, for you shall inherit the earth. The Jews, on the other hand, spent a whole lot of time defending their own holiness and blasting anyone who offended them. It's not meekness. And it's our same temptation and it's our same struggle. See, Jesus defended his father 
the Jews defended themselves. Who are you defending this morning? Because Jesus is defending you. He's fighting for you. And if you're in him, there's no one that can touch you. No enemy, no power of darkness, no demon, nothing can touch you. But if you're in this place this morning, you're like, man, I'm just kind of checking Jesus out. Here's my prayer with the rest of the time that we have that you would see that he is a good God, willing and able to save if you will just come before him, pour in spirit and recognize your need for a savior. Meekness is found in many people that God used in incredible ways in scripture. What about, let's look at Abraham, Genesis 13. God tells Abraham that he is going to be the father of many nations, that he will be the blessed of all nations, that, that literally all the peoples of the earth would be blessed because of him. He even said, those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse. Abraham was rich in livestock. He had tons of livestock. And in Genesis 13, there's this other man named Lot, and he was also very wealthy in livestock in the same land. Now, there was this great debate and this struggle with the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot. And they're like, there's not enough land here for all of our livestock to be in the same place. Keep in mind, here's Abraham, God's man. Filled with power, God told him all the nations of the earth will be blessed because of you. And he comes to Lot and he says this in verse 8 of Genesis 13. Then Abraham said to Lot... Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like a garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities in the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Abraham had all the power in the world. He could have chosen whatever part of the land he wanted. But he said, Lot, no, whatever, you just take your piece first, and I'll take mine second. See, Abraham had power, but did not use it to benefit himself. Power under constraint, he was meek. David, how about David? If we look at 1 Samuel 24, David, this king, this, this future king that God had anointed, the next king of Israel, He's anointed as king. He kills Goliath and the Philistines, and Saul hears about it, and he takes notice, and it starts to rub him the wrong way because David is in threat of Saul's throne. David and Saul's son Jonathan become very good friends, and they just build this friendship, and Saul just can't stand it. So he sets out to just kill David. He's like, I just need to get rid of this guy. Tries numerous times. He, God defends David. He can't kill him. And finally, David ends up in this cave, which is hilarious because he was actually running to hide from Saul. He's hiding. And Saul shows up in the same cave. This was his chance. All of David's men said, David, this is your chance. Go wipe him out. The throne is yours. I want you to hear what David's response was in 1 Samuel 24, starting in verse 4. And the man of David said to him, here's 
Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and steadily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He could have killed him, and he was already convicted because he cut a little piece off of his robe. But afterwards, David's heart struck because he cut off his corner of the robe. And then he says this, verse 6. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. David did not act on behalf of himself. He did what? Trusted in the timing of God. Power under constraint. Power under control. Knowing that God was his defender, he did not need to defend himself. How about Moses? One more. I love Moses. Moses was, (laughs) I love what Numbers 12.3 says about Moses. Listen to this. Now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Moses was the meekest of them all. If he was weak, I guarantee you, he would have not killed the Egyptian who was after a Hebrew man, slaughtered him. Righteous anger. He went after him. That doesn't sound too wimpy to me. Or how about when he was up on the mountain and he comes down and all the nation of Israel is worshiping this golden calf that they had set up. And he comes and he lights it on fire and he burns it to the ground. And the Bible says that this calf became nothing more than dust. And then Moses throws it in the water and makes his people drink it. That don't sound too wimpy to me. But... He was the meekest of all men on the earth. He had power under control. See, he defended God at all costs, and that doesn't sound very weak. But on the contrast, I want you to hear one more man in Scripture. His name was King Uzziah. We can see lots of this in 2 Chronicles 26, but basically he becomes king at the age of 16. Great military force. Defeated many armies. Here's Uzziah, and the Bible even says that he made towers all across the land. He even made machines to sling arrows. Man, I wish I had that ingenuity. So here's this man, this boy, actually, and his fame began to spread all across the land because this man was a warrior. But I want you to hear in verse 16 what the Bible says. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on, or to burn incense on the altar of incense. You're like, well, why is that such a big deal? Because according to God, the only one that could burn incense on the altar were the priests. But Uzziah was like, well, I'm pretty good. Look at all this stuff I've accomplished. And his pride began to swell and he immediately disobeyed the God of heaven and what was his consequence verse 21 and king uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and being a leper lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of the lord and jotham his son was over the king's household governing the people of the land he was not meek he had all the power but it wasn't under control all the power 
but no constraint, not meekness, pride. Pride comes before the fall. That's what God says. So we see a few things here. One is this. When one becomes proud, they will inevitably violate God in trying to defend themselves. The second thing is this. When one is meek, they will defend God because they have no need to defend themselves. I don't know if I've shared this story with the church or not. If I did, forgive me. But if it was, it was when we were still in the hotel. So I've probably forgotten it by now anyway. But when I was in college, I was in health and um, health enhancement. I was going to be a PE coach and a basket or a PE coach, PE teacher, basketball coach, whatever. So that was my vein of study. And I had to take this class called human sexuality. The class was crazy. I'm just telling you, <laughs> crazy. I go into class one day, and I literally on the big screen, this professor set, puts up this video, and it is literally porn. And her thing was, well, this is an instructional video on how the human body works. And I'm like, this is just not acceptable. So what did I do? Well, precursor, in case you haven't known, like, I don't want, my desire is not to offend anyone, but I'm far more worried about offending God than any one of you. <laughs> and it was the same thing with this teacher. And so I went in and had a conversation with her, and she's like, ah, that's just how the class works. I'm not changing it. And I said, well, that's not going to work for me because God has designed marriage in a certain way. And what you, I literally told her this. I said, what you are doing in that classroom is destroying marriages for years to come. And obviously she didn't agree, but that's okay. And she wouldn't do anything about it. So what did I do? I took it to the dean of the school. And we got this group of people together, and I had more conversations. I mean, I'm telling you, I had like hours worth of conversations with this lady. Finally, she's like, listen, Luke, here's the deal. You either watch it and read my book, or you fail the class. I'm like, whatever, fail me. I don't care. I'll take it from someone else next semester. What's it matter? She couldn't really handle that because she lost all of her leverage. But here's the deal. In the whole time, like, I did not come across attacking her. I'm like, this is just not okay. Finally, a result comes, and... It was amazing what God did because now the school offers a class online that you don't have to watch that stuff if you choose to. So students weren't like locked into it. But here's my whole point. God is looking for people to defend him and defend the cause of Christ. And if we don't do it as the church, no one else will. Could I have gone in and just fiercely, powerfully just did my thing? Yeah, but that's not meekness. What did God use and do with meekness? He offered an entire new class for students all throughout the years to come. If they don't want to watch that garbage, they don't have to. But God uses someone who will defend him and not worry about defending their self. I didn't care about failing the class. I wasn't concerned about the defense of myself. I was concerned about defending the case of Christ for generations to come. That's meekness. I have another friend, and he was the president of, I mean, you don't really need to clap for that. I don't really like it when people applaud me, so. But you can if you want. Glory to God, right? Glory to God. One more thing is I went to school in Southwestern, and I have a dear friend. His name is Paige Patterson. He was my seminary professor, and he got absolutely mauled when this Me Too movement swept through the country. There was false accusations about him. Some things he's like, yeah, I mean, I could have done it differently, but lots of this is false. And 
Long story short, he basically was in Europe, and the school called him and said, you're done, we're stripping all your retirement, we're stripping everything, just leave. He's been the president of the school for years. And I remember talking with him one day and being slandered all over the country, across everything. I mean, he's done some amazing things for God. And I remember talking to him one day, and he said, you know, I've had so many of my friends tell me I need to file a lawsuit because I have a just cause. And you know what I tell them? God's my defender. No need to defend myself. When I get to heaven, it doesn't matter anyway. That's meekness. Every case in the world to file claims, to file lawsuits, and he's like, you know what? Eh, God's my defender, but I will defend the cause of Christ until my death. That is meekness. So what is the result of being meek? Two things. One is this. You're blessed. Jesus says it. You have this joy, you have this happiness, you have this just this exceedingly great joy that fills your soul. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the first thing is, you're just blessed. You're just flat out blessed. You want to be blessed? Then be meek. <laughs> you want to be blessed? Be pure and poor in spirit. You want to be blessed? Mourn over your sin. You want to be blessed? Be meek. You want to be blessed? Hunger and thirst for righteousness. You want to be blessed? Be merciful to others. And God says the blessing of God will come. Number two, though, is this. You shall inherit the earth. This is a crazy one because really I don't think Jesus is necessarily talking about you will just inherit the earth now. What does he promise Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus is saying, those who are meek, those who will defend me and just allow me to defend their cause proves that you're in me and one day the whole earth will be yours. All of it in its fullness. But the amazing thing is the kingdom of heaven is here now too. And if you are in Christ, the kingdom of heaven is yours. So as we wrap it up, I want to say five things about this, why it's necessary. And I got these, full disclosure, from John MacArthur because I thought this list was amazing. Of why is meekness necessary? One is this, only the meek can be saved. It's the first and foremost reason why it's necessary. I mean, look at Psalm 149.4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people he will beautify the meek with salvation. Two things in that verse that are stunning. One is the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He's not a divine angry bigot in the sky looking to crush you like the next stink bug that walks through your door jam. He takes pleasure in you. He takes pleasure in his people. But also he will beautify the meek with what? Salvation. Meekness is knowing that you can't defend yourself, so you need someone to defend you. His name is Jesus. To defend you in the presence of God that you can be declared righteous and perfect because of the righteous robe of Christ. He defends you at the throne of God. You must have it. If you don't have anyone defending you, you can't be saved. Because the only one who can defend is Jesus himself before the throne of God. You need to be meek to be saved. Number two is this. You cannot receive God's word without meekness. 
James 1.21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and, ramp and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Meekness, humility, power under control. Realizing that I can't overthrow the world on myself and I can't overthrow my sin by myself. So I need someone to defend me and his name is Jesus. Number three, you can't witness without it. 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with what? Meekness and fear. Our witnessing does absolutely no good if we're so high on our own horse. <laughs> the world doesn't need someone else to tell them how great you are and then watch your life and be like, well, why the heck would I want that? Because they say one thing and they do this thing and they're just proud and they're almost like arrogant towards their God. Don't miss this. Meekness is not arrogance towards God. Meekness is not this, this self-pride that just puts you on a pedestal and lifts your nose in the air because, oh, I'm so much more righteous than all the rest. It's called the Pharisees and everyone else that Jesus was combating when he was here. Meekness is this power under control, this humility that comes out when we realize that we don't need to defend ourselves. And get this, don't miss it. We don't even need to defend the gospel or the case of Christ. God doesn't need defending. He's sufficient. But we are to defend him and say, man, I will go to my dying day that he is my savior, he is my Lord, and without him I am sunk. It's not that God needs defended. We need to defend him. To prove to a hurting world that what we profess, we actually believe, and it comes in the form of meekness, not pride. Example. If you're trying to share the gospel with your friend and it comes across like you're just trying to ram a bunch of information down their throat so you can win them to Christ and check it on your board that you had someone that said they gave their life to Christ, that's not meekness. Meekness is coming before them and saying, man, I love you and I care for you and will you just share your story? Will you just share your heart and then listen to what God has done in me? Humility is huge. Pride will destroy it every time. Meekness is what God uses to transform the earth. Why? So that others may inherit the earth. Meekness, power under control. Number four is this. 1 Peter 3, 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of meek and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That's wild, right? That God actually sees us as precious in his sight when we're meek. And when we're meek, it brings him glory. And number five is this as we wrap up. This is a big one. And this is what the whole thing is actually driving towards. So buckle up. 
It's necessary for peace. Meekness is necessary for peace, Psalm 137.11. But the meek shall inherit the land, sounds a lot like verse 5 here, and delight themselves in abundant peace. Peace. What only God can give. There's not a thing on the planet, there's not a toy, there's not a person, there's not a success, there's not a failure, there's nothing that can give the peace that only God can give. There is great peace when you know you don't have to defend yourself. There is also great joy knowing that you have someone else to be your defender, Jesus himself. One thing that I love about Caroline is... Uh, as we go through life and different things happen, and, man, it's hilarious because if someone comes at me, I'll be like, yeah, it's fine, whatever, I don't care. And she, like, gets riled up. She's like, no one comes against my man like that. <laughs> Who is it? I'll sick him. Put me on him. <laughs> what? They said, what? Oh, no, that's not happening here. Not a chance. And you know what I love about it? is I know that she's my defender, so I don't have to defend myself. You know what I love about the gospel? God is my defender, so I don't have to defend myself. That's the beauty of the gospel. That we don't need to have it figured out, and we don't have to have military might, and we don't have to have all the answers, and we don't have to plow through people. And when someone at my work comes at me and says something, I'm like, what the heck? Did that really just come out of your mouth? That was deeply offensive. Ah, whatever, man, God's got me. The message of the gospel is this, that only it can give peace, a peace that passes all understanding. And if you're not in Christ, you don't have peace. You just don't. And it comes through meekness. So here's my question. Is God your defender? If God's your defender, we really have nothing to worry about. Whatever, take me out, Satan, whatever. We'll be in the presence of God anyway. You know what that does? Gives peace. Peace that whatever the world throws at me, it is well with my soul. Peace that if I just came down with a diagnosis of cancer, it is well with my soul. Peace that if my wife or my husband just left me out of nowhere, peace, it is well with my soul. God is my defender, not the attorney. Peace that if you just got the worst news of your life, it doesn't have to impact you in a way that the world wants to throw at you. Peace. God is my defender because he has declared me righteous in his sight. Why? Because I have believed upon the work of Christ, the finished work, that when he rose out of the grave, he defeated sin and death, and he said, I am your defender. So don't worry about anything else. That's the gospel. And I don't know where you're at this morning. There's really two people in this room, two kinds of people. There's more than two people. I see many more than two people. Yes, I can count. Not good. I failed pre-calc. That's how I ended up in preaching, out of engineering. But I can count some. There are two people in this room, one who have been saved, who the blood of Christ is over, and God is defending you. 
And you don't have to worry about things because Jesus, God, is your defender. And there's another person in this room maybe that God is not your defender because you have not surrendered to him. God defends his people all throughout Scripture. I mean, you don't have to go very far. I mean, just start reading, and God always defends his people, always. But here's the beauty of the gospel, that if you're in this place and you're just like, man, I just don't have peace. I just don't. My life is unraveling. It doesn't make any sense. And, yeah, I got that news. And yet, maybe my husband did leave me, and I just don't know what to do, and I am completely depressed and discouraged, and rightfully so. It's a very hard thing. But what Jesus is offering is something that you cannot get on your own. It's called a peace that passes all understanding. And all you have to do is come to him. There's no magic formula. It's just, man, God, like, I know that I, I realize today that I've been trying to do life all on my own strength and all on my own merit. And it's just hard. It's rough. I don't get it. It's like no one is for me. Everyone hates me. Well, I know one person who's for you, and his name is God. His name is Jesus Christ who has come to set you free. And if he is for you, let the whole world be against you. It doesn't matter. But if you will come to him on his terms... And say, God, I just realized today that I need you and I am far from you. God, I believe that when you sent Jesus to die on a cross, it counted for me. That when he went into the grave and walked out of it three days later to defeat sin and death, I know that that can be placed upon me, not because of my work and not because of my righteousness and not even because of how perfect or not perfect my past was, but because God has declared me righteous. That's the gospel. And I'm telling you, until you have an encounter with the living God, you will never have peace. You just won't. You can have some excitement. You can even be happy. And you can have some joy. And you can have these things. But you will not have peace, true peace, lasting peace that only God can give. Come to him. If the band wants to come up, I'm going to land this plane on a short landing strip today, right? But seriously, today is the day of salvation. If you are far from God, today is the day. And, but the other thing I want to say is this to you who are saved. If we could be a church that were meek, that had this power under constraint, this power under control, the power is the message of the gospel, the power is the Holy Spirit at work. The power is what God wants to do in this place. And if we would be meek about that and come before him and say, oh, God, just, just use me however you see fit, God. I'm done defending myself. I will defend the case of Christ. I will defend the gospel to my last breath. But, God, you take care of me, and I'm just going to focus on what you've called me to do, and that's love people well, and that's serve people well, and that's show them who Jesus is, and not just preach at them for a mark on my belt, but truly love them and come in meekness and watch what God might do. In your marriage, be meek. In your friendships, be meek. In your life, be meek. At work, be meek. With your best friend, be meek. With your enemy, ouch, hard one, be meek. For those who are coming against you and trying to destroy you, be meek. We were coming against God and trying to destroy him, and he was meek with us. And get this, his kindness leads to repentance. Meekness.
kindness, gentleness, humility, power, under control, constrained for the message of the gospel to reach a world that is hurting. He has commissioned us in his army, and no, we ain't a bunch of sissies. No, we don't back down and just cower. Oh, gosh, the world's coming at me. Get away, devil, you bad boy. We take him head on because we have the power of the gospel. We have the power of God, and we will stand in boldness, and we will stand in confidence knowing that he is our defender. We just move forward with the power of the gospel, the only message that can save Jesus and Jesus alone. For there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved but Jesus Christ and him alone. Meekness. Let's bring it to the world. Let's bring it to our neighbors. Let's bring it to our family. Let's bring it to our enemies. Let's bring it to those who revile us. Let's bring it to those who are against us and watch what God will do. You know what he'll do? Jesus said it. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail because I am the king on the throne. I am the king of glory. And that little enemy guy, yeah, done. But I am the one who saves and I am the one who redeems and I use the meek of the world for they will inherit the earth and the gospel will move forth with power through a bunch of people who will bow low, lift him high, empty ourselves so that we can be filled and watch what he will do. I promise you, you won't want to miss it. Be a part of God's plan. Be a part of what he's doing. And watch him fill you with utmost blessing, happiness, joy, peace. It's a promise. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for what you're doing in this place. I thank you for how you're moving. I thank you, God, that we have the honor of being a part of a church that is in the top 1% of the country for the things that you are doing. And that is nothing that I have done. That is nothing that we have done. It's that you have chosen to show your favor on this place. And God, would we not ruin it by being proud? Would we not ruin it by being too full of ourselves? God, would we be meek? Would we be poor in spirit? Would we mourn over our sin? And would we have this power under control? And God, I pray that if there's someone in this room that does not know you, that today is their day. That they would realize, God, that you came to save those who cannot save themselves, and you came to save those with the dirtiest past the world could ever imagine. Because that's how you do it. You make beauty out of ashes. You redeem what the world cannot redeem. You restore what the world cannot restore. So God, if there's someone in this room that is far from you, would today be the day of salvation? Draw them, God, to yourself. Would they realize their need for a savior? And would you just blow their mind by the things that you do in and through their life? God, we're asking you to move in this time right now in a way that only you can. And we give you all the praise, honor, and glory for you are worthy of it all. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.